over the past few decades, there's been a term that has emerged to describe the growing unease in churches around topics related to corporate worship together. The term is the worship wars. And this has been a struggle throughout the generations. It's been a struggle that uh, from the time of, of, the, of the church beginning of what does it look like to engage the culture, to speak in ways that are relevant, but also uh, to be faithful to the commands of God in that way. And, and it's been true in this last century in interesting ways. Uh, that debate was there in the middle of the 20th century for the Catholic Church. Do we continue with Latin being the only way that we engage in worship, or is there some way to engage uh, with different languages? This has been a commitment of Christianity, different from other religions, is the commitment to translate the message of Jesus into the speak of those who are present. It's been the move of Christianity from the start that has allowed us to engage in mission across the world. And these questions keep coming up. Early on, it was, can we sing songs other than the psalms that we find in the psalm uh, book in Scripture? Is it okay to sing words that aren't actually in Scripture as part of our worship to God? Is it okay to, to sing melodiously rather than to chant? These were the worship wars of the early centuries. And then there was that new song uh, in the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Not so new today, but it was an introduction of something new that Luther brought. But this isn't a sermon series about those kinds of wars. This is a sermon series about a worship war that goes on in all of our lives, every single one of us. This is a sermon series about idolatry. Now, when I mention idolatry, if your allusions to that word are anything like mine, your first thought is, really, Colin? We're in 2017. Surely we've evolved past those pictures of centering our lives around wooden statues, bowing down to foreign gods. Yes, it does seem primitive, doesn't it? The idea of idolatry, of idols in our lives. The image in my head is something that's far back. It's regressive. It's something we must have moved past. Perhaps it seems irrelevant in this year. Maybe unless you've been overseas, you haven't come across an idol quite like that recently. But I'm convinced that idolatry is perhaps the most important conversation we can have because it's a war of the gods for all of our lives that continues today. And here's why I believe this conversation is so important. I have a theory about a chasm, a a divide that's happening in our world, it's happening in our church, and it has to do with the way that we understand sin. There's two different groups that I see emerging and actually growing apart, and a lot of it has to do with our understanding of what sin is. One of the ways uh, that, that we divide this up to see those differences, some might call it a conservative-liberal divide. Others might see it as more of a generational divide, but those labels probably aren't real helpful. The, the divide between how we see sin is between two kinds of groups. One of those groups is group A, and group A sees sin as moral offense against God's code. That we've been given Scripture, and Scripture relates to us that God's set out in Scripture what His commands are. And so if you want to know what's wrong, what's sinful, you look to Scripture, you, you, you find there the, the things that God has said is against His will, and we do our best to make sure that we don't cause any offense to those moral standards. You may have heard it said before generations ago or maybe recently. The Bible says that that settles it for me. 
Uh, and so many of us grew up in this world where uh, it was an offense against God's moral code. This has been the traditional view of sin, but that view is being challenged. On the other side is another group, group B, that sees sin in a different way. The way they would see sin is a, a series of questions. One is, does it cause harm to oneself? The second question would be, does it cause harm to someone else? And the third question is, is there some kind of abuse of power where someone with more power is somehow using that power to enforce and cause problems with those who have less power? And you can probably find on on, on the board this morning, on the, the slide, where you would stand when it comes to sin. But I see a growing chasm, a growing divide. It's in the church. It's also in the culture around how we understand what sin is. And there's a growing number of people who would find themselves in group B, and it's causing problems in our churches, this divide. And if we're not careful, it will be easy for us to divide across these lines. But if we choose to divide across these lines, what it will mean is it will be harder for millennials, for emerging generations, to find a place in church uh, in the future. And it doesn't mean that we give up on what Scripture has to say, but it does mean that we need to ask some new questions and be able to deliver some new answers to those who are asking them. Because I think we all can agree we want our kids and our grandkids to be a part of church. And this is the ever-present struggle in our lives, is how do we bring Scripture to bear on our world there are some things that both of these groups would see as wrong, aren't there? I mean, any kind of sexual assault, for instance, would be seen as wrong on both sides. There's scriptures we can point to, and, and we see the harm that's done and abuse of power in those situations. The same is true for, for human trafficking or slavery. Both sides would see those things as wrong. I believe we all have an innate God-given sense of right and wrong that is indelibly stamped on our consciences as the people of God, as, as the people who are created in His image. Now, if we wanted to bridge this divide, it doesn't mean we need to throw Scripture out. But it may mean that we need to answer a new set of questions that some of us weren't handed answers to growing up. And if it's the difference between your kids and grandkids engaging in church, I trust that we'll want to engage this conversation. Now, for most of us, this would be me included. I grew up in a world where it didn't really matter the answer to the why is sin a problem or why are these commands given. What was important is it was placed there and we're to follow and to stay away from anything that would step outside of God's way. And I think that's a good impulse. It's my first impulse to go to Scripture to find out what God has to say. But for group B, there's a question that will always need to be answered about the commands that we continue to point to. And that question is this, why? And I don't know about you, but the world I grew up in, the church I grew up in, didn't really answer that question for me. It wasn't important why. The important thing was that God had said it, and that was it. But if you're asking a whole new set of questions about what sin is, does it cause harm? The question is, okay, I understand that's in the Bible. And this is just the truth of where this new generation is at. Their question is, why does God say that? Why is that important? Surely there's a reason behind these commands. And I want to submit to you this morning that I believe there is a why. I don't think God just sets out arbitrary commands. I believe God has reasons for the commands he set out in Scripture. And so I don't need to think we need to be afraid of this question, why? I think it's important for us to return to the text and to come up with answers for those who will be asking them. Are you following me this morning? Why has God set out these standards in Scripture? And this series is an attempt to answer that question. 
Okay, we've grown up with Scripture, and Scripture's important. It's still going to be my first impulse to go there to discern. But for a new generation that's asking a new set of questions, I think it's important for us not just to be able to quote book, chapter, and verse. That's vital. But it's important to connect that to the lives of people and to be able to answer, this is why God has set these rules and standards in place. So for the next several weeks, what I want to do is I want to have a conversation about idolatry. Because I think idolatry is the answer to the question that's posed. Let's pray as we open this time in Scripture and in the Word this morning. God, I, I pray this morning that you would you'd pour through me the gift of, of preaching. That you would move in somehow in this room, God, to open us up to realize that there is a growing chasm, a divide in our churches. And it doesn't mean that we have to, to give up what's been passed, but it does mean we probably have a new set of questions to answer. God, I pray for this next generation. I pray for my kids, for those that will come in the future. We pray that they would be faithful, that you would continue to pass on this deposit of faith, for we believe that the good news of Jesus Christ is as relevant as ever. God, help us to continue to find ways to speak in ways that will answer the questions of this next generation. Every generation thinks certain things about the generation before and struggles with the generation after. God, I pray that we can bridge that divide, that we can be a church uh, that can pass this faith on well, that will hand on the baton of faith without a stumble. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, open with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The first mention of idolatry in Scripture comes in Exodus chapter 20, when God is setting out the Ten Commandments to hand on uh, to, to Moses and to Israel. This is the chapter where he passes on those Ten Commandments for the first time. And if there was ever a starting place for Group A's understanding of things, that God has set it out and we just need to find it, this is the place. Growing up, I heard the Ten Commandments as God's top ten list, right? The sins that you ought to make sure you stay away from. And in some ways, I saw God as an angry God. I don't know if you saw this growing up or not. This was the perception I had. I'm not sure it was passed on in overt ways, but it was what I gathered from my understanding of Scripture. And I understood that this God was angry with us, and these commands were ways for us to ensure we didn't incite His anger in any way. After all, I I grew up knowing that God hates sin. In fact, God can't even be in the presence of sin. What I didn't quite get was as Jesus walked on the earth, that didn't seem to carry over. That Jesus was very comfortable among sinners and tax collectors, embodying the kingdom of God and the wholeness and goodness of the kingdom that he sought to preach. Jesus crossed boundaries the Pharisees were uncomfortable with. So these Ten Commandments were a beginner's list of things to ensure God would never be angry with us. But the idea of an angry God didn't originate with Christianity. It originated in the gods of Babylon and the gods of Assyria and the gods of the ancient Near East. We don't get credit credit for this picture of God, thankfully. Credit goes to these angry gods that were preached before. The conception of most ancient religions was that these gods really didn't care much for the humans that were on earth, that they were gods like Zeus that were ready to throw lightning bolts down from the heavens to cause problems for those that would really disrupt the natural order of things. And this view of the gods was passed down in so many ways, and so that we down on earth are up, are looking up to the heavens, waiting on something we might do that storms would arise to punish us for. And so religion became human's way to establish rituals that would in some way appease these angry gods. 
the idea was if we could sacrifice enough, then maybe these gods wouldn't be angry with us and we could go on with our lives. And so it begins with a grain sacrifice and it moves to animal sacrifice. And for most of these religions in Scripture, we find out that it ends up in child sacrifice. Just keep upping the sacrifice, hoping that you can appease these forces in the heavens. The sacrificial system was a system designed to formalize a way to appease these gods. And these views have crept into modern pictures of Christianity. In many surveys that are still done today, Americans, more than any other picture of God, see him as an authoritarian figure, a God who's angry, that if we mess up at all, he's ready to catch us. And if that's the view of many Christians, then what do the Ten Commandments become? Well, they become forewarnings of things to avoid, don't they? But that conception begs the question, maybe we need to return to these Ten Commandments. Maybe we need to read again and make sure that we've understand them properly. Let's read again from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want to stop right there, and I want to help us notice something that's easy to miss. Again, Exodus 20 can seem like a list of rules from this angry God who's premeditatively determining when he's going to be upset. But it's so much more than that. Notice the difference between Israel's faith and and, and the pagan religions of the time who saw God as angry. Let's read again in verse 1. This is actually a huge leap forward in human progress. Exodus chapter 20. We tend to think of Christianity or or the Jewish religion as a backwards faith in 21st century culture. But I want to tell you, this is a huge leap forward. Exodus 20. Let me read again. And God spoke. Let me stop right there. It's a whole new idea. Because the other gods and the other religions didn't speak to humans. They just threw their lightning bolts down. They were angry with humans. No need to speak to these humans at all. But this God, the proclamation of Exodus 20 is this God speaks. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. As I'm thinking back about the memorization I did of the Ten Commandments, I don't remember verses 1 and 2. I remember beginning in verse 3. Because verse 3 was the beginning of the memorization of what those Ten Commandments were. But verse 2 tells a very different story. This isn't a God who just kind of inscribes things into stone and says, all right, make sure you don't do this. This is a God who begins by saying, I'm the God who saved you. This is a story that doesn't begin in Exodus 20 like it does on the tablets that we see around courthouses. This is a story that begins all the way back in Exodus 1 with a God who proves that he's faithful to to Israel, a God who proves he's more powerful than all the other gods in the stories of the plagues as he defeats God after God in Egypt. This is a God who's actually come close to humans, who's heard their cry and has liberated them from bondage. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Command 1, this is a God who demands full loyalty. As we sung before, there are no other gods who are greater, this God describes. And that's a fresh idea because this God demands full loyalty. This is a shift forward in human consciousness and understanding from polytheistic religion to now a God who says, no, 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 you don't get to worship the rest of the gods. I am the God above all other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. This was a brand new idea for the people who had walked out of Egypt. Long ago, Abram had come across this God. 
But I imagine many had come to see the sun God and the Nile God and all these other gods. And this God comes in Exodus 20 and says, I've saved you. I've heard your cry. I've liberated you. There are no other gods that are greater than me. Remember, for a generation that needs the why question answered, this is why idolatry is such an issue. Because this God demands full loyalty. Verse 5. Or verse uh, 4. You shall not make for yourself an image the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. He moves straight from uh, monotheism, I'm the only God, to now you're not to make anything that would show an image of me. And why is that? I think it's partly because of what we read in Genesis 1. We're created in the image of God. In other words, why would you need another image to be created? We humans are created in the image of God. We reflect back in some way, imperfectly in many, many ways, but we reflect back who God is. In some ways, those who are gathered here this morning reflect back to the world the image of God, and we pray that we can do that in better ways in the days to come. But these are brand new ideas. You wouldn't need a statue, but somehow God has put His image on the men and women who were created in His name. It's an important thing to remember, everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why is idolatry off limits? It says it right there. God is a jealous God. Now that catches me off guard. I don't know about you. Because in the book of Genesis, jealousy is really never a good thing. Genesis chapter 4 is the first example that we see of jealousy, I think. It's a picture of Cain and Abel. Scripture says that that Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. It found favor before his eyes, but Cain's wasn't. And the first murder in the world comes as a result of jealousy. Brother against brother, somehow seeing this sacrifice more pleasing to God. Cain was jealous and it begins the, the string of sin. Genesis 30 is another picture of the jealousy that shows up in Scripture. Rachel is the, uh, the mother, desires to be a mother at least, but it's Leah, her sister who's able to provide children to Jacob. Leah has no problem having kids, and so Rachel decides, well, maybe I ought to give my maidservant to ensure at least somebody uh, from, from my side gets to have children for Jacob. And what a mess has resulted from that jealousy as well. Genesis 37, we talked about the story several weeks ago, the Joseph story. Joseph is a story about jealousy, isn't it? Joseph has these dreams and relates that to the brothers, and all of a sudden all this jealousy is created, and those brothers sell Joseph off into slavery. We see in the book of Genesis how jealousy causes so much trouble over and over again. So it's a bit troublesome when we come to Exodus 20 to hear that God is a jealous God. I asked my kids about this verse last week. I said, okay, help me understand this, kids. What do you think about jealousy? Well, jealousy is not a good thing, Dad. Well, what do you think about God being described as jealous in Exodus chapter 20? And they, were, they didn't have words for it. But this description of God as jealous shows up several times in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New as well. Exodus chapter 34, a few chapters later, we see God describe himself in this way. Again, this is Exodus 34, verse 14. Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Again, in the context of idolatry, not worshiping other gods, not only is God a jealous God, he says, my name is jealous, which I've never prayed to jealous, right? 
This is what Scripture says. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, a little bit later in Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23 and 24. Listen to these words that are describing our God. 4, 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In each of these passages, idolatry is a theme, and God's jealousy is a theme. And each time, God wants His people to know, I'm a jealous God. So why does God keep tying these things together? Why does He tie together the idolatry of His people with the jealousy that describes who He is? First, let's talk about idolatry. I do believe that we as humans are made to worship. We're built to bow. There's something in our DNA that longs to give honor and glory to things that are greater than us. And the option in our world is not between worshiping God and not worshiping. That's how our world's divided things up. Well, there are believers and there are those who aren't believers. There are atheists and there are theists. I don't believe that's true at all. We all worship. The question isn't if you will worship. The question is what or whom will you worship? Because the heart's an idol factory. Your heart is the battleground of the gods. And we can't not worship because we can't not love something as ultimate. Here's the interesting thing about idolatry is we often look to Scripture and we think that idolatry is about serving bad things. And certainly in Scripture we see Baal and Ashtoreth, all these foreign gods, and we look at that and we go, yeah, that's worshiping bad things, things that aren't of God. I would submit to you, though, that in 2017, we're much more tempted to worship good things than we are bad things. Uh, idolatry is, is not finding something bad and putting it on the throne. No, most often in our lives, it's taking something that God has created as good and it's putting it on the ultimate throne of our lives. And every time that happens, this goes back to that question of why is what is sin and why does God put these commands? Every time that we put a created thing above the Creator, chaos will be the result. It's not the way God intended things to be. The order of creation I'll talk more about next week. But again, we're not tempted to worship bad things. We're tempted to worship good things. And God knows all this. God knows that we will worship. Our hearts will draw, be drawn toward people or things. But that doesn't answer the question about God's jealousy, does it? Why does God describe himself as jealous? And if I could have your attention at any point this morning, this is the place I want it because I believe this could be something that would change our lives. I said before that Exodus 20 represents this huge leap forward in human history. This God who, who tells a story of liberation, a God who picks up people, a God who cares and speaks to humans, a God who frees his people. Before Exodus 20, the gods were seen as angry, and the job of humans was to appease these gods. This, though, that God is a jealous God, is actually the very thing that makes Christianity stand out from all other world religions. This God is unlike all the others. God is jealous. He is jealous for you. He's jealous for your worship. The pagan gods weren't jealous. They didn't care all that much. They didn't care about humans. We were kind of bothered by the things we would do to mess the world up, it seemed, in those stories and myths that we read about. But this God, our God, is a jealous God because this God, our God, is a God who deeply loves each and every one of you. 
He loves all of us. And Exodus 20 can be seen as the original set of laws from God, but I choose to see Exodus 20 differently. I see Exodus 20 as the marriage ceremony between God and Israel. This is the moment that the vows are said, the covenant that is made. When you've been to a marriage ceremony before, you see this act re-engaged, don't you? You see two people coming together, making a covenant to one another, sharing rings, making vows. Exodus 20, these words, the Ten Commandments, these are the vows of Israel and of God. And all wedding vows have one thing in common. The forsaking of all others, don't they? Each of you who've been married, you made this commitment. You said in those vows, I'm forsaking all others. I'm deciding to commit to you for the rest of my life. Because saying yes to your spouse means saying no to every other suitor. And in Exodus 20, we see the same vow spoken, don't we? You shall have no other gods before me. This is not a question of an open relationship with God. No, this will be a relationship that will be bound together. And this is why in our world, when it comes to marriage, adultery is such a painful offense in any marriage. Because adultery destroys the trust in any good marriage. Paul Copan makes this analogy so well in one of his books. He says, a wife who doesn't get jealous and angry with another woman who's flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish, these are the appropriate responses to such deep violation. God isn't some abstract entity or impersonal principle. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. This God is different from all of the other gods. This, this, the other gods care nothing for humans. This God doesn't need to be appeased. This God is jealous because this God loves us. He's made a covenant to us. This God cannot stand to see it when our hearts are drawn in other directions. And if you need a reminder of this this week, I want to encourage you to open to a book in our Bibles that maybe you haven't spent as much time with. It's the book of Hosea. Hosea tells this story about God and his people, about a marriage with a prophet that he calls. Hosea is called to an incredible task. Hosea is a prophet that's commanded by God to marry a woman named Gomer. Gomer, don't name your kids that. This woman is a prostitute, promiscuous woman. She sleeps around on Hosea throughout the marriage. But God commands Hosea, I want you to remain faithful. Just stay with her. And I believe part of this is he'll understand how to speak the message of God and the betrayal that God has felt if he understands it in his own life. There's something about a prophet who's experienced the truth, right? You hear the words of someone who's been through grief so differently than someone who hasn't when they walk beside you through your time of grief. And Hosea has some kind of ethos, some experience that allows him to speak in incredible ways to the adultery of Israel because Hosea has been called to a marriage and called to remain faithful. And over and over again in in the book of Hosea, it's a microcosm of the story of God and Israel. God commits to the vows. We repeated the vows back, but we remain faithless. And interspersed through the book is this anger of God, the consequences that he pronounces on Israel for her unfaithfulness. Israel had sought after other gods, and it's a torturous book to see God at work when he's experienced this pain. And he's so angry, his jealousy is in fits of rage. But in Hosea 11, there's a shift that happens. I think this is one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture, Hosea 11. I want to read it 
to you this morning, a reminder of this jealous God and what happens with his anger as it turns. Hear these words. Listen closely this morning to the word of Hosea who's experienced the word of God. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by my arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Do not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me Most High God, I will by no means exalt them. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One among you, I will not come against their cities. They will Follow the Lord, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. You hear the heart of our God in that passage? It's the feeling of a betrayed spouse, the feeling of a betrayed parent whose child is not chosen the same way. You see this anger of God, don't you? What are you doing? I've raised you differently. And now I'm going to turn you over to your enemies. Now you're going to experience the full force of my anger against you. But in this moment, in Hosea 11, God's heart has changed. You see his jealousy, the fit of rage turned to his love, a reminder of the vows that he's made, his love that he cannot give up. And if you've ever made a turn against God in your lives, if maybe you're on that journey right now you need this passage. Reminder of who the God is that you married back at Sinai, back in the days when you were baptized. It's God wants to give us up in those moments just as we feel that. But something turns in God. It's the steadfast love of God that wins over. It's the jealousy that's the love from the very start. It's the story I hope to pass on to my kids at a different dinner down the road. I didn't think of Hosea 11 at the right time. I look forward to reading this passage to them in the future to say, you know that time we talked about God's jealousy and it was really hard to figure out? Jealousy seems like a bad thing. Well, in the bounds of a marriage, in the bounds of a covenanted relationship together, jealousy is a wonderful thing. It means that there's love there. It means there's commitment there. It means that this is not an open relationship for others. This is the God in Israel. This is us and one another. This is our commitment to you kids. And one day, it may be that you'll make this commitment to another. This is the God we serve. Not like the gods who are angry. No, this God deeply loves His people. I hope your heart is moved when you think about that in your own life. God will not give up on you. There's nothing you can do 
that there won't be a turn halfway through his anger where he'll turn back and long for you to come home. It'll prepare a place. You remember the story of the prodigal son, don't you? It's the same story. We want to run far off, far off the lands from different places, but this God is waiting on us. He's looking out from his land, waiting to run and to greet us. Maybe this morning is your morning. You need to admit the idolatry that's been going on in your life. To admit that you've wandered off from God. To admit that maybe you thought this God wasn't all that good. He's good, church. He loves you. He wants nothing more than for you to come home and to reestablish the bond, the commitment, the covenant. I'm amazed by the love of God. I'm amazed by this passage in Hosea 11. I'm amazed by the faithfulness of Hosea, but even more the faithfulness of God. Our God is a jealous God. Amen? Thank God for that jealousy. Because without it, we wouldn't stand a chance. His jealousy is our only hope. And I'm grateful for it this morning. Let's pray as we close our time in the Word. Father, I thank you for Exodus 20. There's some important commands in that passage that we do well to remember and to keep. But I'm also moved by verse 2 that I seem to never remember memorizing. That you don't just call us into a law-keeping faith. You call us into a story that you've saved us first. You are the prime actor, the one who worked before the creation of the world. And you covenant with us and you stay faithful even when we are not. We confess this morning, God, that we are idolaters. We've given our hearts to other places. And it's not so much the bad things, it's the good things in our lives that sometimes we elevate to places they should never go. This morning, God, we confess our idolatry. We hand back over to you the lusts of our lives. We hand back over to you our unwillingness to be hospitable and loving to our neighbors. We hand back over to you our acquisition of greed and wealth. We hand back over to you our families that sometimes we elevate to too high a place. We, we hand back over to you the dividing lines between nations, God, that we sometimes hold on to when you don't see those like we do. God, I ask today that we would be moved by your jealousy. We'd be moved by your compassion. That we would be moved to action, to placing again you on the throne of our lives and our hearts. God, over these next few weeks, would you Help us see the goodness of who you are. Would you help us answer the why question? Because the truth is, your commands are good. Your law is good. Jesus came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And I believe there's great reason for that. Help us to see it, God. This morning, God, would you move in our lives, our hearts? Would you receive our repentance? Would you forgive us and help us to stand again in the land? We pray this in the name of Jesus.